There's one thing I wanted to mention, and that's the fact that on October 2nd, there'll be an open house in honor of Pastor Neil Odgers, who has served as our college pastor since, uh, I think it was 87, and now the transition has taken place where Travis Parks has uh, stepped in. Neil and Travis have been working together for a while, but now um, that has been made official, and and Travis is leading the college ministry still. Neil is still around uh, doing uh, small group ministries and discipleship ministries, and we're very thankful for that. But this uh, tailgate open house, October 2, 12 to 4, and if you're interested, please RSVP to Shannon Delap at gmail.com, and I think this is also in the worship folder, so you can get a little more information on that. Let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer, shall we? Lord, what an awesome thing it is to come into your presence and to remember that you killed darkness and death and by your resurrection are triumphant over the grave. That you, Lord, have fulfilled the law on our behalf that we may be called the righteousness of God, that we can take on the righteousness of Christ and be righteous in your sight because of him. Help us, Lord, to have eyes that see clearly our own spiritual state and also the wonderful resources in our beautiful Savior, in whose name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Earlier this month, Nancy and I had to buy a new dishwasher. Ours went on the blink. So we went to the salesman, and the first question he asked us was, well, how long have you had yours? I had to do a little computing. We lived in this condo for about seven years, and the condo was built probably eight years before that, and only guessing that it was new when the condo was built, I said, well, it was, it's probably about 15 years old. And he says, he said to us that yours lasted longer than most. Now, maybe you would respond like I did. Yeah, but my mom and dad had one that lasted 30 years. And he said to me, they don't make them like they used to, right? Now, that's not just with appliances. That's in a whole lot of things. And it brings to surface this idea of planned obsolescence. I thought this was a new thing, but actually it's a rather old thing. Back in 1932, a man by the name of Bernard London wrote a pamphlet entitled Ending the Depression Through Planned Obsolescence. His goal was to boost the struggling American economy trying to come out of the depression, and he advocated regulating the lifetime of goods causing premature failure in the product so that new products would pour onto the market. You'd have to get rid of the old that is not working and get something new that won't work very long, but that will stimulate the economy, ensure higher levels of consumer spending. Modern-day planned obsolescence seems to be found in many things. Firms deliberately design functional products to fail artificially. So we think of appliances, we think of smartphones, right? They have a very short life by design. Not just the hardware, but especially the software. 
You can talk about computers. Back in the 1920s, light bulbs lasted too long, according to the Phoebus light bulb cartel. <laughs> That's what they were called in the 1920s. A light bulb would last maybe 2,500 hours, and they designed the new light bulbs to last 1,000 hours. Now, I'm not going to buy a light bulb from a cartel, but that's exactly what they did, and it's with us today. And as a consumer, well, I'm just ticked. I mean, that's a raw deal. I want to buy something of quality that will last. And yet, when you think about it, sometimes planned obsolescence is not a bad idea. I go to my dentist. My dentist says, you have a cavity. We're going to drill down that tooth until nothing is left but a peg. And we'll put a crown on it and things will be well. But before you get your crown, at least this is the way it used to work, it takes a while for us to make that crown, we're going to put on a temporary cap. Now, the temporary cap is good and you'll be able to eat and you won't have many problems, but it's designed to be temporary until you get something permanent. The cap and the crown. And that reminds me of what we find in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. Planned obsolescence. Open up to Hebrews, chapter 7. The first 10 verses we've already looked at deal with kind of the historical story of Melchizedek. Pastor Doug read uh, from a portion of Scripture in Hebrews that introduces ourselves to this intriguing character who's mentioned 11 times in the Bible, once in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, once in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, and then nine times in the book of Hebrews. Six of those occurrences are in chapter 7. So Melchizedek is the theme. Melchizedek is but a picture of the point or meaning Jesus. You've got type in Melchizedek and anti-type, fulfillment of type, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. One is the photo and one is the focus of the photo or the real purpose for it all. And so now we come to chapter 7, verse 11. And notice it says, if perfection could have been attained through Le the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of that priesthood, the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? Well, that's a good question. And that question surfaces an issue. It implies the inability of the old system to achieve complete salvation. It suggests the imperfection of the old way, the system of the law. And that's going to be his focus. An imperfect system existed when Jesus came on the scene. It was divine. It was sent of God. But it was imperfect. And you'll note that from verse 11 where it says, we still need another priest to come. Another one who is like Melchizedek, but better than Melchizedek. 
The old system is not sufficient to the task. It doesn't meet our individual need. I like the way that's translated. There still is a need for another priest and after a different order. So not only is there a need for another priest, but there is a call from Psalm chapter 110 for another priest. It's mentioned here at the end of verse 11, but we're going to see Psalm 110 a couple other times in this great chapter. There is a call for a priest, not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek, which reveals, again, the inadequacy of the old system. Look at verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said, referring to Christ now, he of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in with regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So if you change the priest, you've got to change the law. Now imagine you're a first century Jew who has been taught for years that the way of Moses is the way of God. And indeed it is. Our approach to God has to be through the animal sacrifices and it has to be offered by a legitimate priest only coming from the tribe of Levi. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, that's all gone. We cannot imagine the shock value. These are fighting words. And almost any Jew would be angry. But that's exactly what the author is doing. By the way, I think we miss the shock value of Scripture often in the parables of Jesus. Because if you can get yourself into the heart and mind of someone in the first century, you will understand that the words of Jesus were very shocking. We need new wine, he says. Not new wine put in old wineskins. We need new wine in new wineskins. And the people say, well, what does that mean? This is exactly what it means. By the way, the word descended in verse 14, this is a little aside, but it's, it's really amazing. The word literally means to spring forth from. And it's the same word when the Old Testament is translated into Greek that you find in Numbers 24 when it talks about a star springing forth or arising from Jacob. And that's an Old Testament prediction of the coming birth of Jesus Christ. And so just as this one would arise a star out of Jacob who is Jesus, so the same thing is going to happen. Jesus, and it refers to him again, springs forth, not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. And the law, Moses never said anything about them. Verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest, like Melchizedek, Jesus, appears. One who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life, or as some translations have it, an endless life. 
Now I have to mention verse 16 says that there is one like Melchizedek who appears, verse 16, who has become a priest. This may be a little technical or sound a little technical, but the Greek tense is a perfect tense, which means completed action with lasting results. So it could be translated, Jesus has become a priest and remains a priest, which is going to be established later on in the chapter, by the power of his indestructible life. It's not based on what tribe he's from. It's based on the character and the power of the resurrection. That's probably what it's referring to. The power of an indestructible life life. In other words, mighty God uses this amazing power to raise Jesus from the dead, proving that you cannot kill Jesus. He is indestructible. Oh, he truly died, which is a mystery, but he came back to life. And the power of the resurrection proves that. And not only that, verse 17 says, he has declared concerning Jesus, you are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, the law has been changed, divinely so. The old covenant, divinely given, had a planned time in which it would become obsolete. And when would it become obsolete? When the perfect arrives in the person of Jesus Christ. And God has declared it. After the law, there comes one who is going to be a priest forever, not based on his ancestry, but based on the order of Melchizedek. And we know it's referring to Jesus, not only because of Hebrews here, but because the first part of Psalm 110 talks about the one who is exalted and seated at the right hand of the throne on high. The law of obsolescence. And so you come to verse 18, which is a bit of a shocker. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless and made nothing perfect. That is rather blunt. Set aside means canceled, declared invalid. It's used later in chapter 9 to talk about putting away sin. The law has been put away because it was impotent and sick and feeble. Now, this is exactly how the Apostle Paul saw the law. Galatians chapter 4, it's, the law is weak and miserable in its principles. Or Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh... In other words, it was a system based on human priests and human beings. And because of that, it was weak. But what the law was powerless to do, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Maybe the strongest word here is that word useless. It's used in Isaiah 44, verse 10. Again, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, same Greek word, when it talks about idols, prophet, 
nothing. And now the Old Testament law of Moses is put on the same level as a worthless idol. The law makes nothing perfect. It had a proper role. Galatians 3 said the law was a schoolmaster to take us to Christ. The law still has a role to reveal to us how sinful we are and how far we fall short of the glory of God. But the law can make nothing perfect. It's obsolete. It's the cap and the crown. It's the temporary and the permanent. Now, you may not see this in your translation, but you do see it in the revised uh, version translation. Verse 18 and verse 19 have a, on the one hand and on the other hand, comparison. The former regulation, on the one hand, is set aside because it was weak and useless and made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope has been introduced by which we may draw near to God. Now you've got the imperfect system being set aside and replaced by, get this, verse 19 and following, the perfect Savior. The perfect Savior. And the scripture says he's the one who brings a better hope. Both the word better and hope are used often in the book of Hebrews. A better hope is being introduced by which we may draw near to God. That word introduce, you, you just read over rather quickly, but this is the only time in the whole New Testament this particular word is used. And what it does, it's a compound word of the normal word introduced with an added prefix that literally means super introduced. Years ago, I went to a conference with one of the associate pastors at South. This was uh, back in the 90s, I think. And Val Chapel and I went to this conference. It was, it was a, a big conference, kind of for business people. And we thought, well, maybe we could learn something by way of doing business. It was held in Detroit. And uh, there were probably 10,000 people there. We were in one of the big arenas, uh, sports arenas there in Detroit. And they had a bunch of big names they would bring in, usually one of the, pr the president of the United States or someone like that. And the heads of business that everyone knew. And the guy who put it together uh, came on on the docket after some of these other names. And I'll never forget it. We're sitting there and the lights go low and then all of a sudden spotlights flashing everywhere. Music starts playing. Curtain pulls back. And here comes this guy who set up the conference and he comes out to applause and he goes like this. And then he goes over to these people over here. And then he goes over to these people over here. And he goes, boom. And I leaned over to my associate pastor and said, that's the kind of entrance I want on Sunday morning. <laughs> Actually, it made me sick. But I thought it was a super introduction. I mean, they put everything into it. But how about the introduction of Jesus into this world? Born of a virgin. Things make doing miracles all the time. And then dies, not for his own sin, but the sins of others. And then comes out of the grave alive. You talk about an introduction. But that's exactly what the Hebrew people need. When they've been told all of these years it's the way of Moses. But now a new covenant has come. There is new wine and new wineskins. And Jesus is given to us a better hope than you ever had before. Because he's a perfect savior.
Not only that, and we'll have to come back to these verses because there's so much here. And we'll see this later on in Hebrews. It says in verse 19 that Jesus allows us to draw near to God. He paves the way, as it says in Romans. The law does the exact opposite. The law keeps you away from God. Oh, yeah, the sacrifices temporarily appease the justice of God, but you can't get close. Your high priest has to go for you. But Jesus, our high priest, has gone behind the curtain, and he's taken us with him, and we're brought into the presence of God. So now we, as priests of God, based on the atonement of Christ, can draw near to God. The law says you can't. Christ says, come. And that's the difference between the gospel and the old covenant. Our confidence concerning our future hope, our better hope, is so transforming that it changes our lives today. The hope we have of the second coming of Christ, the hope we have of a life that never ends, the hope we have that every person who's died in Jesus Christ we will see again, the hope that our bodies will be transformed like unto his glorious body, the hope that we will live in glorification and a perfect state, that great better hope transforms the way you live today. Or at least it should. We have a magnificent Savior. I just wish somehow that I can impress you with how great Jesus is. But listen to what the scripture says. Verse 23, now there have been, or excuse me, back to verse 20. This new hope is not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. They were ordained, but there was no oath from God for the Levitical priests. But Jesus became a priest with an oath when God said to him, and now here's Psalm 110 again, but the whole thing, or more of it is given, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The word covenant will be found 21 times in the book of Hebrews, and the covenant we have is better than the old covenant. Because it comes from a perfect person. Josephus tells us, I don't know if it's right or not, but the Jewish historian said there were 83 high priests between the, uh, the beginning of the Aaronic Levitical priesthood and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. I thought there would be more, but he says 83 high priests. And the reason why there were 83 high priests is because the guys died. You know, we've had a lot of presidents in America. Uh, there's a rule that you can only serve so long, but I'm sure someone's going to try to change that rule, thinking they should serve longer. But another reason why the presidents don't serve forever is because they die. Jesus never dies. He's a high priest that doesn't have to be replaced. And so we have God's oath. By the way, verse 20 through verse 22 is one sentence in the original. And the last word is Jesus. And that's intentional. 
It's artistic on the one hand. I hope you appreciate the beauty of the scriptures. If you know anything about literature, and I know very little, but what I do know, it is written in such a wonderful and beautiful way, intentionally artistic at times. And it's also written with the last, the last word, Jesus, for emphasis. It's emphatic. He's the most important statement. He's the most important word in this long sentence. And so an oath has been made, made by God. The old priest didn't have an oath. This priest does have an oath. Quotes Psalm 110, and because of the oath, this person has become a greater guarantee of a better covenant, Jesus. Let him be the crescendo of every song and the heartbeat of every soul. The fact that he would be a priest forever was declared in Psalm 110, and we saw that earlier, but now it's declared again in Psalm 10 with an oath the Lord has sworn, which makes it doubly certain. Now, God Almighty, who never lies, does not have to make something certain, but he condescends to our level because we're so used to people telling us a story and not giving us the truth. So God says, here's the truth by oath. And by word. And that ought to encourage our souls. So he's the perfect savior by the oath of God. And he's the perfect savior because he's the son of God. Verse 23. There were many priests since death prevented them from continuing in office forever. But Jesus lives forever. And he has a permanent or valid priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely or forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. And because Jesus is a permanent priest, he can save completely or save forever. Verse 25 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Ask me tomorrow, and it may be different, but it's one of my favorites. Because it talks about, and I memorized it in the old King James, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What a grand verse. He saves completely, so you've got the totality concept, and permanently, so you have the forever concept, all brought together and beautifully described in that phrase, to the uttermost. God's salvation is not chintzy. It is permanent and total. He's talking about the quality of salvation, the fact that it is eternal, and we'll come up with this rich concept already mentioned in chapter 5, but mentioned again in 9 and 10 and 13, that our salvation indeed is eternal. So because Jesus lives forever, he's a permanent priest. Because he's a permanent priest, we're saved completely. And we're saved completely because he's always praying. Verse 25. We are sustained by the continual intercession of Jesus Christ. That is a concept that's hard to grasp. When you tell me, 
Pastor, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for the whole staff. That really encourages our hearts. Some of you say, I pray for you every day. You don't know what that means. But to add to it, the fact that Jesus is praying for me constantly, the blessings are amazing. How then can I be discouraged? How then can I give up? How then can I return to an old system that doesn't exist anymore? That's been set aside because it's useless. Now that Jesus has come, oh, don't turn from Christ, the wonderful Savior. Romans chapter 8, who condemns? When Christ has justified. He's died more than that. He's been raised to life. He's at the right hand of God interceding for us. Romans 8 and verse 34. The great theologian F.F. Bruce said, remember this. Jesus intercedes as a throned priest and king. Sitting next to the father asking what he will. From a father who always hears and grants his request. You know, there are some people who are prayer warriors, and I want those people praying for me. Jesus is right next to the Father, and every request is fulfilled. So, verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need. He's suitable for us. We're sinners. We need a perfect Savior. We're sinners. We don't need a a human priest anymore that was okay for a while but we truly need one who is like us but one who is different from us and Jesus truly meets our need you have a lot of needs but the scripture says here you have one need and Jesus meets that one need you need to get right with God and Jesus is the only one who can meet that need only one only one (laughs) there is no other way religion is thrown into that first category of being obsolete and set aside and useless but Christianity is Christ and he is perfect and he meets our need why does he do that well or how can he do that he's holy I had a dear lady come into my office this week and she said, Pastor, I had to just make an appointment with you and talk about how Jesus is holy. Said, I just want to talk about it with you. And she used the phrase, he is other. That's the phrase that got to her heart. He is other. And that's one of the best definitions of the word holy. He is other than us. He is like us. So he could die for us, but he is other than us, so he could save us. He's holy, separated from sinners. Blameless and pure refers to the innocence of the sacrifice. Exalted above the heavens talks about his resurrection or his ascension, as we read from Psalm 110, seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, verse 27 says, unlike the other high priests, Jesus doesn't have to offer a sacrifice day after day after day. 
first for his own sins and then for the people. No, Jesus sacrificed his sin, sacrificed for our sins once for all when he offered himself. There was no high priest of all the 83 who one day went to the brazen altar and said, I'm going to offer a sacrifice and it's myself to slit his throat. Have others put him on the brazen altar and burn his body as a sacrifice. No one ever did that. But Jesus did. He shed his blood for us. He's the high priest of the offering. And he died for us. And he rose again. And he lives forever. And he has a permanent priesthood based on the power of an indestructible life. When he sacrificed for our sins, it was once forever. Never to be repeated. That's the power of the blood of the cross. Oh, we've got to come back to this verse. Once for all, he offered himself. It becomes the central argument later on in chapter 9. And the power of his indestructible life reveals the character of our forever salvation. A forever savior. We are forever saved. So in verse 28, it's just one final summary or comparison. The law appoints high priests who are weak and die and sinners. But the oath has appointed a priest, Psalm 110, who lives forever. It's the son. And he has been made perfect. Now look at the contrast. We started out in verse 11 with a system that could not bring perfection, complete salvation. And verse 19, the law makes nothing perfect. And now the word is repeated, but the son is perfect. And that's why Jesus is able to save. I sing the praises of my Savior because he is the perfect Savior and will save all who come to God through him. Simple faith. Genuine faith. He has been made perfect. That word made perfect again. Perfect tense. Ongoing everlasting results always will be perfect. He meets our need, verse 26. He saves us completely, verse 25. He is the perfect Savior. And if you have Jesus, Jesus is enough. C.S. Lewis once said, He who has God in everything has no more than he who has God only. When you have Jesus... That's all you need. He is perfect. And he is enough. Back in 1980, my wife Nancy was pregnant with our second child. And she was very sick. The nausea was so much that she went to the doctor and received compazine, not knowing that she was allergic to it. The allergy was frightening. I'll never forget she, 
she began to have all her muscles contract and she seemed to shrink before my very eyes like a little old lady hunched over who couldn't stand and she could barely walk. And I took her to the car and we went and rushed to the emergency and I was pleading, help, we need help right away. And a doctor on the scene, so quick and so good. And he, I told him what had happened and he said, here, I've got a shot to counteract it. And he gave Nancy a shot and I said to him, is that gonna be enough? And he said, it will be enough. And moments later, she calmed down. And she was fine. And the doctor's word was true. Now the word of a doctor, a good doctor, can be wonderful. But the word of mighty God is far better. And when he says, Jesus is enough, my friend, Jesus is all you need. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise your name and ask that you will meet with us in a powerful way right now to speak to hearts. So as, as already mentioned, Lord, the fact that some may be here who don't know you and they may not even know that they don't know you, but your spirit can speak to their hearts and use your word to open their eyes and let them see, let them truly see their spiritual condition today. That without Christ, there is no hope. But in Christ, there is a better hope that will last forever. And maybe in this very moment, those individuals who don't know Christ will cry out, Lord, save me. Simple prayer, but from an honest heart, guarantees that Jesus will respond. That's his promise. So Lord, please speak to hearts at this very moment. And for those of us who are believers who forget that we have a perfect Savior, that we're not in a system that is frail and weak and useless, it's not religion made by man. It's God coming down to save. We are sinners, and Jesus is the perfect Savior from sin. Help us to remember that every day and to walk in this wonderful hope we have that is bound up in the perfect Son of God, in whose name we pray. Amen.